We are continuing our study of the book of Luke. We're at chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Last week, we uh, just basically, uh, in looking at the end of chapter 4, talked about the importance following Jesus' example, the importance of setting aside quality time uh, to be with our God and to to be with Him face to face. Uh, We are to cultivate an, an awareness of His presence in our life all day long and talk with Him all day long. At the same time, there needs to be set aside time following the example of Jesus. And we saw last week that the Bible puts a priority on, uh, in the morning, before your life gets busy. Your first waking moment, I encouraged us to cha- I challenged us to uh, uh, get in the habit of having our minds turn to the Lord first thing when you wake up, before you even get out of bed, and say good morning to the Lord, and, and maybe do, some, uh, do your devotional before you even get out of bed. Um, it's a good discipline to begin cultivating in your life. Then we also saw last week, as we studied Luke chapter 4, that uh, Jesus isn't our personal genie just there to pop out when we need him. Uh, rather, it's not so much that we're to invite him to be part of our life, but rather we're to accept his invitation to be part of his life. Uh, all of our life is to be invested in him. That's what the kingdom is about. There's a Copernican revolution that needs to happen where we don't just have the, the world and Jesus circling us, orbiting us, but rather our life is to orbit him. He is the center. And we find that when we do that, uh, we move into a, a, a dimension of full fulfillment and peace we otherwise could never know. It's in your best interest to not make your best interest the center of your interest. I didn't even plan on saying that. That just came off so good. It's in your best interest. How did I say it? It's in your best interest to make your best interest not the center of your interests. Okay. Yes. Oh. All right. So there. Now that's preaching. I used to always think people were just being arrogant when they say, that's good preaching. But, you know, sometimes stuff comes out that you don't even plan on. It's like, that. It, whoa, look at that. So that was a good statement. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, you've already got the price of admission right there. All right. Luke chapter 5. Uh, and I'm, I'm titling this something like uh, Fishing with Jesus, or it could be Smelling Fishy, or A Fishy Sermon, or something with fish. I don't know. Steve Wacha is going to come up with a title before they sell it as a CD, but just look for fish, and you'll find it. Here's what it says, and I'm reading out of the TNIV version. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret is a, this region that's just south of Capernaum. Uh, And the lake of Gennesaret is simply the Sea of Galilee, but if you're in Gennesaret, you call it the Lake of Gennesaret. (laughs) And Luke, being a good historian, knows these sorts of facts, and so he names it according to uh, the title that the people of Gennesaret would have given it. It's the Lake of Gennesaret. The people were crowding around him and listening to the Word of God. Now, this crowding around thing, these are little details you don't normally pick up, but you see, remember back in those days, they didn't have microphones like they did today. And so you'd have to really project your voice when you're talking. And the people who are on the outer fringes couldn't hear very well, so they'd always be pressing in. Well, that creates kind of a a crowd. And here Jesus is standing by the lake, and he's getting pushed into the lake. So he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats. This is the one belonging to Simon. And he asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the boat, uh, the people from the boat. He taught the boat. Boat, get saved. Uh, he taught the uh, uh, people from the boat. Uh, Jesus, being a good preacher, always is looking for a better platform. And so uh, he gets a, a little bit more shouting distance by moving out into the lake where the people can't follow him, and that way he can teach better. Note also that it says he sat down to teach. I've always pictured Jesus standing when he taught. Uh, but, he, but more often than not, he sat down. 
And that's why I'm really being more godly when I sit down, uh, even though right now I'm, I'm being defiant and standing. All right. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets, dictia, for a catch. And that will become important here in a moment, uh, that word dictia. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard. It's an interesting word I'll talk about later on. All night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. So apparently both, sets of, both boats went out to obey Jesus, but only the boat that Simon was in caught all the fish. So they called over the other boat and said, you've got to help us here. We're being deluged with fish. So they came and they filled both boats so full they began to sink. The weight of the fish pushed the boats almost to the point where the water starts lapping on the side. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were Simon's partners in this fishing industry. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, including all those fish they just caught, and they followed him. Lord, let this word come alive. Let it be light. Let it be life to us, Lord God, and use it to confront us and transform us to be more thoroughly devoted kingdom people than we were when we came here. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Three things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the obedience of, Jesus, uh, of Peter, the response of Peter, and the call of Peter. First, the obedience of Peter. Uh, Peter obeyed Jesus when, when Jesus says, push out and let's, let's, let's take another crack at this. We need to appreciate how hard this would have been for Peter to do. First of all, Peter is a professional fisherman. Jesus is not. Jesus is the son of a carpenter. Peter could have easily thought, what does a carpenter know about fishing? When they ain't biting, they ain't biting. This guy just doesn't get it. But he doesn't go there. Peter doesn't go there. Secondly, it says that they had worked hard all night. Kapiasantis is the Greek word that's used there, and it has the connotation of, of wearisome, toilsome work. It's not just ordinary hard work. They, they were, these people were tired. A, a, an appropriate street language translation would have been uh, for Peter to respond by saying, well, Lord, we, we've, we've been busting our butt all night long. Okay, there's a sense of frustration in this. But if you want to set out, well, then, then we'll go ahead and do it. Um, uh, another thing is this. There's two words in Greek uh, that are translated net. Dictia is the one that's used here, and it denotes a night fishing net, a, a night that was designed specifically for night, a net that was designed for night fishing. There's another word that's used for day fishing. They've been fishing all night, uh, and they were washing their nets, and those are the nets that Jesus says you're supposed to cast out once again and go fishing. But it's daytime now, so Peter could easily be thinking, Lord, if if, if we didn't catch any fish using the right nets, do you think our percentage is going to improve by using the wrong nets? Nevertheless, Peter go, goes ahead and obeys Jesus. He could have had the attitude, something like this. Jesus, look it, you're a good healer, and you're a good exorcist, and you got some good teachings. Stick to that. Stick to what you know. Uh, but I'm the fisher guy here, and I know that when they ain't biting, they ain't biting. You can't use the wrong nets and think you're going to improve your odds at all. Could have said, Jesus, you stick to the spiritual stuff. Leave the practical business stuff to me. But Peter didn't do that. 
Peter had only known Jesus a very short while. We know that in the previous chapter, they'd gone to Peter's um, uh, house uh, so Jesus could heal his mother-in-law. So there was some contact there, and Peter had seen Jesus do some of the miracles. So it, it may have been that Peter thought something like this. Though this guy doesn't know anything about fishing, there's something about him that is such that maybe, but maybe he knows something that I don't know. Maybe he's not just good at healing the sick and casting out demons. Maybe he's not just good at doing the spiritual stuff. Maybe he's got something to tell me about this practical enterprise of fishing. And so Peter obeys, and the result is that he's deluged with fish. And this is huge, you guys, because uh, these guys weren't doing recreational fishing. This was their livelihood. Every one of those fish represents something like a $10 bill. To have two boats full of fish is to have two boats full of, of, of $10 bills. These folks hit the fish jackpot. They won the fish lottery. I don't know how that would translate in terms of, of how long they could have survived on this or whatever, but, but it's very plausible that they, this represented maybe months worth of fishing. They could have lived off of this for a very long time. And it was all because Peter let Jesus uh, have say-so have a word, have authority, not just in spiritual matters, but also in his business. And the challenge that we're presented with, that I want to present us with here this morning is this. Would I do the same thing? Would you do the same thing? Because what I know about us modern Western people is that we tend to be very compartmentalized. We've talked a lot about this. It's one of the uh, diseases of modern Western culture. We, we fragment everything up. And so I've got my, my, uh, my romantic life over here and my kid, life with my kids over here and my business over here and my church over here and my recreational time over here. And we've got these different centers of our life and they're not very integrated at all. That's why you may recall when we did the Beautiful Life series, we talked about the need to integrate our life, to simplify our life, so we're not pulled in all these different directions, to to bring some unification to our life. But as it is, we tend to instinctively get compartmentalized. And so we can easily think, and I think a lot of us American uh, Christians think this way, we can easily think, okay, well, Jesus is, is the spiritual part of my life. Yes, he's good on the spiritual stuff. And so we have a nice little compartment that Jesus fits into. But when it comes to my business, when it comes to my finances, when it comes to my marriage, when it comes to raising kids, uh, well, you know, that's, that's just kind of practical stuff. And, and Jesus doesn't have much to do with that. We can easily think, what does Jesus, a first century Jewish person, know about, about being a 21st century plumber or, or having a house cleaning business? What, is, what, is a 21st, what does a first century Jew know about uh, the, the 21st century stock market or running a business or being a CEO of a company in the 21st century? What does a first century Jew know about raising kids in the 21st century and, and dealing with sexual issues in the 21st century and dealing with medicine in the 21st century and dealing with, with, with practical problems in the 21st century? What could a first century Jew possibly know about that? And so it can happen, and in fact, it happens all the time, that we, we go to him because he died in the first century for our sins, and there's a little spiritual domain that we put him in charge of, but everything else about our life, our day-to-day living is kind of on our own. There we just go to our own manuals or our degrees or our practical experience and whatnot, and, and we pretty much live the way we ordinarily live in those areas. And what we're learning from this, from this uh, lesson, I think, is this. Jesus is not just a first century Jewish person. He is that. But he's also the Lord God Almighty. We're talking 
We're talking supreme being. We're talking God on earth. And if he's the Lord of all, that means he's the Lord of all. That means he's not just the Lord of the spiritual realm. Uh, he's the Lord of the spiritual and the practical realm. In fact, if he's the Lord of all, it means that there is no real division between the spiritual realm and the practical realm. If he's the Lord of all, that it means it's all spiritual and it's all practical. If he's the Lord of all, it means that we, we have to learn to live with a spiritual practicality and a practical spirituality. If he's the Lord of all, it means that we need to integrate everything under his lordship. If he's the Lord of all, it means he knows everything there is to know about life in the 21st century, about practical life in the 21st century. If he's the Lord of all, he knows everything there is to know about electricity. And so he knows something about being an electrician. He knows everything about plumbing. So he knows something about what it is to be a plumber or, or to have a house cleaning industry. If he's the Lord of all, he knows everything there is to know about buying and spending and making money in the 21st century. If he's the Lord of all, he knows everything there is to know about psychological stress in the 21st century and raising kids in the 21st century and sexual problems in the 21st century century and relationship problems in the 21st century and dating and voting and every other practical issue in the 21st century. Why? Because he's not just a first century Jewish person. He is the Lord of all. And if that is true, folks, amen. And if that is true, it means we will be wise if we will follow Peter's example and invite him in to everything. Collapse the distinction, that artificial distinction, even that demonic distinction between the practical and the spiritual. Collapse that distinction and make him Lord of all. Integrate him into all. Uh, invite him into all. Seek his wisdom involved in all things. Make everything that you're about, everything that you're about, an act of worship to the one that you confess to be Lord of all. Practical spirituality and spiritual practicality integrated all into him. Now, I'm not saying, always got to be balanced. I'm not saying that you should never seek out a specialist in any of those areas. I've known some Christians who I think rather naively have said, well, since Jesus is Lord of all, I don't need to go to a doctor. I don't need to go to a therapist. I don't need to read books on how to this or how to that. You know, I don't need to get an education in, in a certain kind of area. I got Jesus uh, and, and he's the Lord of all, so I'm just going to trust in him. And that's a great heart. That's a great sentiment. I love that heart. But I think it's a little bit misinformed because the truth is that the Lord of all can use therapists and can use doctors and can use books and can use education, can use specialists in different areas. So it's not a contradiction to have him be Lord of all and yet go to people who are trained in certain areas uh, for their special advice. God can use that in our life. I'm, not, I'm also not saying that we need to get a direct command of God for every single thing that we do. I've, met, I've known Christians who have kind of gone to this extreme as well, where they, they think to make Jesus Lord of all, that means I need to seek his will on what you know, color socks I should wear today and, and, and should, I, should I wear Fruit of the Looms or whatever other kind of underwear there are and now you know what kind I wear. And, and, uh, uh, and you know, what kind of cereal I should buy. And, and I, you know, honestly now, uh, some, you know, Peter, think about it like this. Peter, normally when Peter went fishing, I'm sure even after this, when Peter went fishing, he just did normal fishing. And he didn't say, what would the Lord have me do? Should I let down the nets at 503 or 504? He, uh, you know, he, God gave you a brain and some common sense and some creativity for a reason. And he doesn't want to turn you into a robot where every single thing you do is a direct command of his. No, you can think a little bit on your own. That's an okay thing. That's not being rebellious. That's just using the gift that God gave you. All right? So, so you don't need to go there. On the other hand, what I am saying is this. It's important that we cultivate and this is a main act of discipleship. Cultivate 
an awareness, a consciousness of God's presence 24-7 so that all that we do, we're aware of his presence. And all that we do, we have given him authority to, if he wills, to intervene and change directions. Peter was just going to go about normal fishing, but then Jesus intervened and said, no, I want you to do something uh, uh, different. We need to walk with an obedient heart where, yes, we're making practical decisions on our own. You know, you can go ahead and make what decisions about what kind of socks you want to put on. But if we're listening to God, he might just for his own good reasons have, a, have, have an opinion on that. And, and, and then we allow him to direct our lives. I'm also saying that it is very important that we, on important matters in our life, seek fervently his wisdom. It says in, in James 1 that if any of us lacks wisdom, let's ask, let them ask of God who gives to all people generously without finding fault. He doesn't judge us. He just gives generously. You need wisdom. And so we need to cultivate an attitude where when we're coming to decisions in our life, uh, we seek his will and we, and we try to discern what is his will. We get advice from friends and ask God to speak through them and we pay attention to promptings in our hearts and we put it before him as a matter of prayer. The default setting in America is not to do that. If we want the car, we buy the car. We want the house, we buy the house. We want the clothes, we buy the clothes. We're going to change careers, we change careers. And the only criteria that most people use is, what do I want? Well, from a kingdom perspective, it's not just about, or even primarily about what I want. It's about what God wants. And so I need to seek God's will. God, where would you have me to live? How would you have me to live? What house would you have me to have? And that's not primarily a matter of decoration. I'm talking about strategic ministry location or career changes or, or whatnot. Uh, go before the Lord and make it a matter of, of prayer and seek his will on these things. Because you might just find, if you're open to it, you might just find, as Peter found, that God might move you in a direction you weren't planning on going. In fact, he might move you in a direction that's absolute craziness by normal common sense standards. And you might just find that if you do that, he's going to sink your boat with blessing. There's, there's a blessing in it if you'll just obey him on something. In fact, I'll tell you this. I had on Friday a, a, a gut impression, and I'm not going to say this is a word of the Lord. I'm just going to throw it out there as something that I, I, I had an impression on. But the impression was that there's at least one and maybe a dozen fishermen or fisher people in our congregation. That is to say, people who have businesses. And the Lord is saying that there is something that he wants you to do that, is, that looks unusual, isn't ordinary, but if you will do it, he wants to sink your boat with blessing. And so those of you who own businesses and entrepreneurs uh, and, and whatnot, just take that and put it in there and seek the Lord. Is there something that he would have you to do that is counterintuitive perhaps? It's not ordinary, but, but, but the, his word is that if, if you'll do that, and probably you already have a sense about this. Something's been occurring to you, so this is just confirming it, if, if this is in fact for you. But there's something you're to do, a decision you're to make, a change that's supposed to happen. And if you do that, if you cast that net out, the wrong net at the wrong time, after a night of total frustration, still, if you'll obey the Lord, you might just find that he sinks your boat with blessing. And frankly, we could use a few businesses around here that are getting sunk with blessing. And that's an okay thing. You see, the reason God blesses you is because he wants to bless you. He loves to bless you. But even more importantly, when you have more than you need, you can be a blessing to others. And this is the God's generous kingdom. Paul says this in, in 2 Corinthians, that God is able to, to bless you abundantly. He's able to sink your boat with blessing. Why? So that in all things and at all times, 
Having all that you need, okay, so your needs are met. He wants to do that. Now, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now you have a, you're empowered to abound in every good work in terms of helping others that God brings into your life, in terms of helping the ministry. So it's not a carnal thing to want to wanna abound in every good work. Uh, get your needs met, and having your needs met, God will tell you when to stop that, and now put the rest of it uh, investing in ministry. And so take that to heart. In your businesses, in whatever, whatever means of income you have, be listening to God. Because God's not just the Lord of the spiritual realm. He's the Lord of every realm. And that means he's the Lord of your business realm, your finance realm, and he'll lead you in that. Amen. Okay, let's look at Peter's reaction to Jesus. That was about Peter's obedience. Here's Peter's reaction. I love this part. I love this part. Get the picture of what's going on here. Here, here they are, okay? Uh, they're starting to fish. They're tired, they're fatigued, they're frustrated, uh, but they throw it out one more time, and boom, that net, the wrong kind of net, functions like a magnet. And the fish just get attracted to it. It's like the fish are addicted to the net. They run to the net. So the net immediately gets full. They pull it up, they put it in, uh, the fish in the boat, and they cast it over again. And then it's, it, there's so many fish that the net's starting to break. So they call over their friends. Their friends come over there, and their boat gets filled. And now, the, remember, the crowd is still there, so the crowd's probably cheering or going hysterical. Who knows? But I get in my mind this sense of complete chaos. It's like pandemonium going on. And, and, and there'd be a mixture of emotions. On the one hand, these disciples are, are going to be thinking, you know, woohoo, we just hit the jig, the, 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 the jig pot, the, the fish jackpot. The jig pot, that's what you call a fish jack. You didn't know that? They, in, in the original Greek, it's called jig pot. All right, there. See, this is why you come to church, to get this expert opinion here, all right? Uh, they, 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 hurt the, they, they hit the fish jackpot. And so, you know, they're, they're singing, they're seeing cha-ching. There's, there's dollar signs. I mean, this is, this is a huge, huge thing. So there's going to be a lot of joy. But then all of a sudden, before they know it, their boats are about ready to sink. The water's starting to come in the sides. This ain't good, because if that boat sinks, all the fish are going to get away, and you might lose your boat, and that boat is your means to a livelihood. You'll be in some serious shape. So there could be some fear that starts to come in there as they're seeing this boat starting to sink. Joy, ecstasy, uh, boat sinking, crowd going crazy. I just see this pandemonium. And, and, and these boats were, were, were typically fairly deep. And if they're getting so full that they're starting to sink, there's a lot of fish, folks. And they're flopping around. You know, imagine that. These, these fish flopping all over the place. And in the middle of that, Peter drops to his knees and grabs Jesus' knees. So now Peter's got to be up to his waist in fish, flopping around fish. <laughs> Get a picture of this. And while fish are jumping on his head or whatever, he's looking at Jesus and he says, Lord Depart from me. Leave me. I am a sinful man. And see, this is what I love. This, is what, this, I believe, is what qualifies Peter to be a leader in the early church. Peter is a man of many, many faults. I mean, the guy, really, you read the Gospels, he had a lot of faults. He had a screwed up view of the Messiah, a military streak in him, kind of a violent streak in him. He's the one who cut off the guard's ear. He, he wasn't the brightest bulb in the room. He, he, you know, uh, ideas just kind of chinked off his head. Uh, he, he, he didn't get things very well. He was the one that Jesus had, that Jesus had to call Satan at one point because he, 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 with all this false bravado that he had, when really he was a coward, it turned out later on, he wanted to stop Jesus from going to Jerusalem. He had a lot of faults. But he had the one thing that you need to have if you're going to be used by God. And that is he had a heart that was open to God. And some, in this moment, while everyone else is either seeing dollar signs or fear, Peter turns to Jesus, fish flopping all over the place, hysteria, chaos going all over the place, 
And he looks at Jesus, and, and I can just see him thinking to himself or saying out loud, who are you? What? He saw past the dollar signs, saw past the blessing, saw past the fear, and right here, right now, what matters is not the boat or the fish or the crowds. What matters is that I am facing the Lord God Almighty. I'm in the presence of deity here. And so he falls to his knees and is not distracted by all the chaos going on around him. And he just gives the confession that you give when you're in the presence of deity, and that is, I am a sinful person. Peter is the first person in the gospel, despite all of his many faults, but he's the first person to look at Jesus and see more than personal blessing. He doesn't look at Jesus in terms of the cosmic Santa Claus. He looks at Jesus, and he sees the real identity of this man. I'm not saying he had the whole theology worked out, but he, he, he knew that this was more than about fish, more than about dollar signs, more than about boats. It was about the Lord God being here on earth. He sensed he was, his heart was open enough to be aware that he was in the presence of God, so he falls down, and he confesses, I am a sinner. When you encounter the real living God, now listen up on this. When you come into the presence of the real living holy God, the first thing that invariably happens is you have, on some level at least, an awareness that you're not worthy. You're not worthy. When you come into the light, it fleshes out the darkness in you, and you're aware of that. It's like being in a room where it's kind of dark, but your eyes get adjusted. You think it's just normal light. But if someone turns on the lights full blast, and those are fluorescent lights, it will hurt your eyes. Well, to come into the presence of God is to come into the one who is light itself. And what it does is it exposes our darkness. It brings it to our awareness. If your heart is open to it. Now, if your heart's not open to it, what happens is, is usually you just lock in and resist it. You, 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 you get more entrenched in darkness. Uh, one whose heart is open to it, when you come into the presence of God, the first thing to go is pride. Whereas someone whose heart isn't open what happens when you come in the presence of God is an intensification of your pride because you're resisting. You don't want that. The presence of God does one of the two things. But to a heart that's open, the first thing that happens is you're aware that you are. Yes, you are a sinner. So even Isaiah, this man of God in the Old Testament, when he sees a vision of the Lord, the Holy Lord, he cries out, Woe unto me, I'm a man who's ruined. I'm coming apart, is what the word means. I'm coming undone. Uh, I'm a man of unclean lips. Paul had the same mindset. When he, when he encounters the real living God, he'd been religious all of his life, but hadn't encountered the living God. When you come into the presence of the real living holy God, the God of the universe, the real McCoy, what happens is, is what happened to Paul. And he says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am worst. And I don't for a moment think that he's given some kind of false piety there that you sometimes hear, oh, I'm just the worst sinner in the world. Paul, I think, sensed this. Though... Both Isaiah and Paul were, in terms of social comparative scales, were, were off the chart on the holy side of things. If you're looking at it at in terms of the, 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 the righteous ometer that, that, that uh, the culture might use, they're way over here. They're, like, they're righteous by social comparison. But see, when you're in the presence of God, being righteous by comparison with others doesn't matter a bit. 
When you're in the presence of God, being righteous on a social, religious scale doesn't matter a bit. When you're in the presence of the real God, when you finally begin to encounter the real God, now you know that the only thing that matters is that he is light and you've got darkness. And whether it's more or less darkness than somebody else becomes utterly irrelevant. Uh, what you sense, what you see is the, your, the, the darkness of your own heart. And so you confess that you are unworthy. That's why the entrance into the kingdom throughout the New Testament, the, the, the first thing you do as you're beginning to walk through the door of the kingdom of God is you confess that you're a sinner. It's an evidence that you are, in fact, encountering the real God. It doesn't mean that you are overwhelmed with the sense of, of every sin you've committed, but it's on some level an awareness that you're not right with God as you are in and of yourself, that you are not worthy in terms of what you do and who you are to be in the presence of God. There's a sense of unworthiness that is there. Now let me say this, and this is very important. Listen up on this. To say that you're not worthy is not to say that you're worthless. Let me say that again. To know that you're not worthy is not to say that you feel that you're worthless. To feel worthless in the presence of God is at least as erroneous as being prideful in the presence of God. Because the same God in whose presence you feel unworthy is the God who says to you that despite that, he gives you unsurpassable worth. And he proves it by dying for you on the cross of, uh, of Calvary. Here is the beautiful kingdom paradox. You realize that you're not worthy in and of yourself when you're in the presence of God, but at the same time, you realize that you have unsurpassable worth because of Christ. You realize that you are a sinner when you're in the presence of the true God, but you also come to know that while you're unworthy as a sinner, Christ is an even better Savior. When you come in the presence of God, you realize that you can't earn worth before God, but you also at the same time realize that unsurpassable worth has been given to you by grace. In fact, it wouldn't be unsurpassable worth if you could possibly earn it. If you could possibly earn it, there's one kind of worth that would be better than that, and that's the one that he gives you without any condition upon what you do. You're following that? It's a little complex, but, but, but the, the worth is unsurpassable precisely because it's not something that you can earn or something you can achieve. It's something that God gives you for free. You're not worthy on the one hand, and yet by his grace, he ascribes you unsurpassable worth. And the whole thing starts, the evidence that you're entering into the real thing is that you confess, you're aware that you are a sinner. The first sign is your awareness that you're not worthy. Your awareness that you're counting the light is that, that you, you become aware of, of the darkness inside of you. You're aware that you need grace. You're aware that you need forgiveness. And so it always starts with a confession. Unless there is a genuine confession that you are a sinner, there's, uh, there, there, you haven't, at least in an explicit way, entered into the kingdom. I don't care that you are comparatively a very good person. I don't care that you've gone to church all your life. I don't care that you volunteer at the homeless shelter every, every other week. I don't care that you've been a good giver to charities. That's wonderful. Keep doing that. The world needs people like you, but that's not about the kingdom. That's I don't care if you're a freaking Mother Teresa. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, this isn't a competition here, folks. It's not a contest here. This isn't a comparative kind of a thing. We're talking about your relationship with God. In terms of your relationship with God, you're in darkness. And the first thing that will happen when you come in contact with the real God is that you'll be aware of that darkness. And then you confess that darkness and thereby confess your need for him to have mercy on you and enter into his grace. You say along with Peter, I confess that I am a sinner. It's just that now that we're on this side of Calvary, we don't say as Peter said, depart from me. We say, thank you for coming to me. 
and we, we acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And the beginning of the kingdom walk, it's just the beginning, but it is the beginning, the beginning of the kingdom walk is that uh, you, you've asked for his forgiveness and invited him to live through your life and accepted his invitation to live in his life. Now let me say one other word about this, and then I'll move on to my last point. I hope I get to it. Because um, it's a good one, but I don't know if I get to it. But this is a good one too, so listen up. Uh, this awareness that you're a sinner, and I hope you see that this isn't some morbid self, you know, flogging sort of uh, talk like, oh, this is a worthless person, because it's mixed with this unsurpassable worth thing. Sometimes you get that, 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 that I'm a snail, slime, maggot kind of theology uh, where people think that the, the worse you make yourself out to be, the more virtuous you are. And I hope you see, you see that that's not the case. But you, you need to start with that. But having done, said that, let me say this. Um, this isn't just the first step in the kingdom, knowing that you are unworthy. Rather, it is a defining characteristic of the kingdom. In fact, the more you grow, the, the, the clearer you see the light, the clear, clearer you'll see the darkness that is inside of you. Um, it's not something that you start with and then let go of, but rather it's always there. I, I had, there's a preacher in, in, some of you know that I, well, my first exposure to Christianity was this very legalistic form of, of, of Pentecostalism. And uh, God used it to really turn my life upside down and save me and whatever, but it was very legalistic. It, to this day, it was the most legalistic form of Christianity I've ever found. And uh, uh, I got the revelation of grace you know, a few years into this, and so I was kind of growing out of it, but I was still, I had my toe in it. And I, uh, my wife and I, when we were first married, were going to a church uh, out east at, that was one of these legalistic kind of churches. And in the middle of the service, this is the last time I ever went to one of these churches, by the way, in the middle of the service, I kid you not, a, a person brought out, the preacher brought out a, a board and unveiled all, that had all of our names on it. There's a church of about 75, 80 people. And he then proceeded to take roll call uh, and asking us how much we prayed that week. We ought to try that sometime. I think that'd be a good thing. Get us to pray more. And so he's going down. I was the second name on the list because I'm a B. And Mr. Boyd, how much did you pray this week? And I, I was like, I can't believe he's doing this. Now, I don't know how much I prayed this week. And I said, I, you know, I really don't know. He goes, well, then estimate. So I lied. <laughs> I, I said, well, I think probably two, maybe three hours. And, and I remember him going, uh, for the week? All right, two or three hours. Okay, now that's an acute to everybody else, and everyone else totally lied after me. Because then it got to be, it got to be kind of a contest, you know. Three hours! Who give me three? Give me three? Give me four? Give me four? Give me four? Five? 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 Here's the holiness award to this person. I mean, it was just freaky. And I, I admit this is kind of a, an extreme case, but uh, you got to use the extremity to show the principle. I went up to him afterwards and I said, uh, Look, at, I, I'm not really getting this. I mean, it seems to me there's a, there's a verse in the Bible that explicitly forbids this. Don't let your prayers be done in public so everyone will know. And how does this at all square with the reality that God motivates us by grace instead of shame? How, how do you reconcile that? And, and he said to me, as they always said in this particular religion, uh, they always had this kind of language, uh, let me give you a revelation, Mr. Boyd. It's like, oh, good, a revelation. <laughs> Here it comes. Here's the revelation. God, we need grace. Thank God for the grace. But we need it when we're first starting out. The same way that a child, when it's learning to walk, needs a little support by the parents to learn how to walk. But the goal is so that we don't need it any longer. Uh, grace is there at the beginning, but eventually we learn to walk on our own. And, and uh, I'm here to help people learn how to walk. And sometimes you've got to do a little spanking now and then, you know, to get these kids to learn how to walk. And I just said, I'm out of here. <laughs> Bye-bye. Go on. I don't need anyone else to spank me. Thank you very much. Um, 
see, that is just so misconceived. Uh, it, it, look at Isaiah. I'm sure Isaiah's more righteous than almost all of us in this place. And yet he, he, when he faces the Lord, when he encounters the living God, says, I am unworthy. I'm a person of unclean lips. It's not like you outgrow this thing. The apostle Paul, for crying out loud, here he's an apostle. And here he is towards the end of his life with all the growth and all the great stuff that he's done. But he genuinely confesses that he is the worst of sinners. As, as you grow in the Lord, it is true that you grow out of some of your sin habits and thoughts and that's an ongoing process and that's a good thing. We are to be shedding that off. But the more you see the light of God, the more you're aware of uh, the, the elements of darkness and the deeper you feel the elements of darkness in your own life. So as you mature in the Lord, the last thing you're going to do is to begin to claim that you've arrived, that, that you can stand over and look down on other people. The more you grow in the Lord, the more you begin to live out and genuinely believe what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7. When he, when he tells us to consider our own sin Sin, to be like a tree trunk sticking out of our eye and any other sin that we see in somebody else to be a dust particle. That's a kingdom mindset. As you grow in the Lord, you get freed from judgment. You get freed from pride. You, you become increasingly aware that all that you are and ever shall be is a total act of God's mercy and God's grace. And so you live life in the celebration of receiving life from him and overflowing towards others. And the last thing you're going to be inclined to do to try to scrap a morsel of worth by contrasting yourself with others. That whole social, religious, comparative, judging thing goes by the wayside. And that's not surprising, since that whole comparative judging thing, as I've taught in the past, if you, if you haven't gotten this, uh, if you weren't here when we did this, I encourage you to check out the series. It's called Love and the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And what I showed there was that the, the original sin which is the foundational sin of humanity in our rebellion against God. The foundational sin is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is all about judgment. And so it's not surprising that one of the main criteria that we're outgrowing our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that we're outgrowing our sin, is that that inclination to judge goes by the wayside. And we don't become less dependent on God's grace. We become more dependent on God's grace. And our lives become characterized by humility instead of judgment. A, a, a primary sign of maturity is that you're growing in humility and growing out of your addiction to comparing and contrasting yourself with others because you realize what a futile endeavor that is. A sign of maturity is that there is a genuine impulse in you that, that, that senses that however you may be on a social scale, that in fact you are the worst of sinners. You have unsurpassable worth for sure, and so you celebrate that, but that's not because of something you achieved. That's because of God's grace. The opposite is also true. The opposite is also true, and that is that it's a sign of immaturity, and a sign even of darkness when people are still addicted to uh, that judging game. Often those people look the most religious. In fact, often those, those folks are the ones that are held up, you know, because they are the ones who are, have the most investment on appearing a certain way and talking a certain way. And their hearts may be sincere, and I don't have anything to say about their salvation or anything like that. That's not anything I know anything about. But in terms of that demeanor, that is a sign of immaturity, if not absolute darkness. This is why Jesus said, one of the most shocking things Jesus said was when he said to the Pharisees that the prostitutes are spiritually more mature than you. This is what got him crucified, by the way. Uh, but in, in, in Matthew 22, they're closer to the kingdom than you are. And the reason is because they're not feeding off of people comparing, contrasting, and judging. There's a humility there, and they're closer to the kingdom. Whereas you are getting life by thinking that you're better than they are. 
and, and getting life by comparing and contrasting. And so you're farther into darkness and immaturity than prostitutes. Sign of true faith is that you're growing in humility. Kingdom people, I just want to encourage us to be in the presence of God to the point where you, it fleshes out your awareness that you have darkness and therefore the awareness that you're in no position ever to judge someone. You may enter into relationships, in fact, you should enter into relationships where they ask you to hold them accountable and you ask them to hold you accountable. Uh, covenantal relationships where we're helping each other live out this kingdom walk. I need people in my life who will say, Greg, your, your attitude is off or this behavior is going down, leading you down the wrong direction. I need that. And I know that they're doing it to me out of love. But that's very different than judgment. Judgment is, is when we look at people who haven't invited us in our life and we draw conclusions about them. With regard to any person that has not specifically invited you into their life to hold you accountable, you have only one job with regard to them, and that is to agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth and therefore bless them as having unsurpassable worth. Whatever you see, wherever you see it, if they're sitting in front of you in this pew, I don't care. You don't have to have another thought about it, not an opinion, not anything. You just bless them and love them and thank God that they're there because God's working in their life just like God's working in your life. So you give them grace, space to grow, and they give you grace, space to grow, and we all grow in line with Jesus. And it may happen at some point, they'll invite you in and you'll invite them in and they'll have things to say to you and you might have things to say to them. And it'll be done out of love. But barring that, if that doesn't happen, you just bless them and just love them and collapse completely the judgment mechanism. I'll close by just saying uh, one word about the third point, and I'll say it in two minutes. Ready? Because I only got two minutes. Um, about Peter's call. Just, just notice this. Just notice this. And then I just take this home and think about it. But when, Pete, when Jesus calls Peter, um, he, Peter says, depart from me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus basically says, depart from you? You've got to be kidding. Dude, I want you as part of my team. <laughs> I, I'm loving this. This is what I'm looking for. And so he says, don't be afraid. Yes, you are in the presence of deity, but, but man, this is what I'm looking for, and I'm going to make you a fisher of people. I'm going to make you an evangelist. I'm going to use you to bring other people into the kingdom. That's all that that means. And then it says that, that Peter immediately followed Jesus. No, Jesus didn't say, now first, can you first clean up a little bit because you smell like fish. <laughs> you know, you've just been kneeling in, in, in you know, knee-high, uh, waist-deep fish. Don't clean up your act first. He doesn't say clean up your fishy smell outside. He doesn't say clean up your fishy smell inside. As you are right here, right now, follow me. No questions asked. And I say that to say this. Uh, there's a lot of teaching out there uh, that would tell you that you first clean up your act and then you follow Jesus. And you're not really following Jesus unless you clean up uh, your act. As if any of us have got our whole act cleaned up. It's totally hypocritical for me to say, first you've got to clean up your act with regard to your sin before you can really be a Christian. When my act isn't totally cleaned up, it's hypocritical. And who put me in charge of deciding which of the, the fishy smells you've got to clean up before you can be considered a true Christian? No, here's the thing. You, you, if, if your heart is there, you're aware that you're not worthy, start following him. Because it's following Jesus that will get you cleaned up. You don't get cleaned up to follow Jesus. You follow Jesus to get cleaned up. Just look at Peter throughout the gospel. Man, he had a lot of cleaning up to do, you know. Uh, but the Lord cleans us up in the process. There may be some who are here who are thinking, oh, my particular issue, my particular struggle, you know, it's, just, it's one of the disqualification ones. And, and, and therefore, I can't invest in this thing until I first take care of that. And I don't want to take care of that, so I'm not going to invest in this thing. But I want to tell you this. If you care enough to say, I, I believe this is true, and Lord, would you, would you start wanting me to take care of this thing? 
That's the first steps in following Jesus. You're aware that you're not worthy. Start walking in that, and it'll give him process time to, to, to get you cleaned up because we're all in the process of being cleaned up. Repentance isn't a one-time thing that you do at the beginning and now you're done with it. It's an ongoing walk in our life. We're always turning from this and turning towards him. And so it's an ongoing thing. There may be some here, and I'll close with this, who maybe it's not as much a present thing as it is a past fishy-smelling thing, uh, something you did in your past. And, and so the devil's got you thinking that, that you know what, you, you're, you're disqualified from being a champion of Jesus. Maybe you can be a pew-sitter spectator, but you can't really get involved because you're a hypocrite if you do, because we all know what you did. And to you, I would just say this. Did you deny Christ three times when he needed you most? Did you put to death any Christians in God's name? Because Peter did the first and Paul did the second, and they're champions for Jesus. And so it seems to me that whatever your sin was, I really don't care. The fact is that right here and right now, if God's calling you, then you just got to obey and start walking it out. Start living this out and watch what God can do. I don't care about the abortion. I don't care about the divorce. I don't care about the adultery. I don't care about the person you killed. I don't care about the cheating, the lying, the stealing. I don't care that you got kicked out of 18 other churches. What matters is that right here, right now, God's calling you. And the only thing that's important about the past is that you learn from it. You learn from it. You get healed from it. And then you offer it up to God to use as part of your qualifications for ministry. That's how it works in the kingdom. And that, folks, is good news. Amen. 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 Yes, God's good. God is so good. Okay, uh, I, I'm just going to send us out with a prayer. Would you stand? And would the prayer teams come forward? If you're here and have any need whatsoever uh, that you would like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward. If you want to accept Jesus, you've never confessed that you're a sinner, would you come forward? These folks would love to just talk to you about that. You need to confess it. You need to acknowledge the reality that you're not worthy so that you can receive his love and grace and get started in the kingdom walk. And so, Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that we would do it empowered to be followers of you. I pray, Lord God, that we would walk in complete humility. Whatever we see in another person's life, God, help us to really see it as a little dust particle compared to the two-by-four in our own eye. God, creating us a freedom from pride and a freedom from judgment, a humility that comes from the mature awareness of being in your holy presence. You are a holy God. And we confess that we are a people who have, who have darkness, are full of darkness. We thank you for the fact that you are transforming us into the light. But we also thank you for the grace that you give us in the process of being transformed into the light. We love you. We want to serve you. Throughout this week, remind us of your presence and see opportunities to build your kingdom in every way, shape, and form to all who are around us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Please spend some time with kingdom hospitality and friendliness in the gathering area. Meet people you don't know. Welcome them. The kingdom starts right there. Amen. God bless.